0: Today is February the first, and so we're going to be in Psalm one, and uh, that's where we'll start this morning. February first is also Clay Mackey's birthday, so you can give him. It's nice to be twenty-one. He looks twenty-one, doesn't he? You do not look twenty-one. You act it sometimes, but you don't look it. Hey, James, I'm huh? 23? Wow. I'm actually 35. So, <laughs> <laughs> baby, baby, baby. No 35. <laughs> so you know our routine, or at least mine, Psalm on a day, Proverbs... A proverb on the day, which means that today I would start with Psalm 1, uh, then go add 30, 31, 61, 91, 121. If you do that, you'll read through the Psalter in a month. Um, And then Proverbs 1, you can, don't add to that because there's only 31. So then you would read Proverbs 2 tomorrow and you can get through the the Proverbs um, in a month as well. Uh, five books to the Psalter, uh, and it begins with Psalm 1. So this is a very significant psalm, and you can probably uh, figure that out just as you listen to it. It lays out two paths of life, two ways to live, uh, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So before we ever start singing about God's deliverance or... Uh, the benefits that he's given to Israel, or the ups and downs of life, or the laments, or the the uh, um, the songs of ascent as the worshipper was heading up to the temple in Jerusalem. It it starts with this. There's two ways to live, There's two ways to operate in uh, in life. One's blessed and one is is not. And so, if you just kind of think of Psalm one as you know, like the big picture, the, the basics, um, all of the other stuff, how you live uh, a godly way or how uh, wickedness comes out in your life. Those are the details that, that you'll find in Scripture. But, but here's the, the two paths contrasted. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Here's the contrast. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. There's no weight to their life. They, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat of the... Uh, sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The summary statement. The Lord knows. He approves. Uh, or He has regard for the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will will perish. We obviously want to be in this former category. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that we are blessed the way we can find blessing in our life. I want to say it that way is to to not turn to the ways of the world or listen to, to the counsel or follow the paths of of people that are godless people that do not know you um, lord what will keep us from doing that what will what our life should be governed by is a delight in your your law um, meaning it's our treasure we look to it we 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 keep coming back to it it's something that we feed on on a on a daily basis and Lord, the men that are here this morning echo the same thing that that I do. We delight in your law. We we take pleasure in it. We want to we want to look into it. We we know our ways are crooked. We know our minds uh, are are perverted. We we easily justify our sin. We we we, we get confused. We, we we take easy paths. We we listen to the voices of the people around us and 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 that even echoes the voice that it's in our own heart and so we submit to your word we, we your voice needs to rule and reign and we pray that it would be louder than all of those things so we we delight in your in your law we, we look to it and um, we're, we're thankful that there's blessing that comes from that um, doesn't always come like a like a, like a lightning bolt or something that's sudden. Sometimes you bring sudden blessing, but, but what's described here is the, is the fruit that, that's born with the, the godly life over, over the long haul, the blessing that comes from following you. Um, and we, we rejoice in that. We don't deserve it, but we're we very thankful for it. And, um, Lord, we, we pray that we would not be in the path of the, uh, the wicked, you promised that you know our ways, and um, we are so thankful for that. Teach us this morning. Help me. Uh, as Okay, so open your Grace and Granite books to page 259. We're going to continue on our series 14 this morning, which is what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. Uh, Nate Weidman pulled out that divorce and remarriage series for you, I think sent it to you in an email, when we were preaching through the gospel of Mark and, and... and while Mark is considered uh, the, the speedy gospel, uh, his favorite word is in immediately, immediately. It just moves along very quickly. Frankly, I think that, that the way Mark inserts the teaching on divorce and remarriage, following the flow, is one of the most helpful of, of the gospels. Because in the gospel of Mark, Mark lays out the demands of discipleship. What it what it means, and what it looks like to be a follower of of Christ. And so he gives those demands of discipleship, you know, deny yourself, pick up the cross, follow me, and then he starts applying that discipleship in different spheres of life. And one of those significant spheres is marriage relationships. And so this, according to Mark, is what it looks like to live as a disciple of Christ in marriage and how it's how it's related. So applying discipleship to uh, to marriage and, uh, and and then dealing with the questions of the of the Pharisees. So the way this lesson is laid out is we started with um, with what the Old Testament says about about divorce, uh, and then we're moving to the New Testament today. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter five and Matthew uh, nineteen um, in uh, in that gospel. And uh, then after we go there, we get into the exceptions and um, Q&A and those type of things. Uh, I would say if you're going to listen to those messages, I think there's six, maybe, five, six, something like that. Um, The first one uh, is very helpful, kind of gives you the macro or the big picture. Um, And then the last two are Q&A's. So we took the questions that people had and we just walked through the different questions. So obviously all of them are scripture, based on scripture, but um, if you're looking for a shortcut, I'd listen to the first one and then you can listen to the Q&A part where you get into all of the nuances of uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and it's laid out with, here's the question you know, and here's the answer, let's look at, um, let's look at scripture. You want to summarize it uh, like really big picture. God says marriage is good and divorce is something that He hates. If You just want to boil down what Scripture teaches. God says it was not good for man to be alone. That was Adam when He first created him uh, without a helper, without a woman. And then after Eve comes along, what does God pronounce over His entire creation? It's good. And so what God created the fact that he created them male and female, created them male and female in order to leave father and mother, the authorial unit that was created, God designed, um, and they cleave together, they become one flesh, not only physically, but God is the one who joins them together in a new authorial unit. Um, Spiritually, they're one flesh, physically, they're they're one flesh they they're, they're no longer seen as two individuals they're now seen as a couple and God addresses them that way they still have individual responsibilities but as far as the Lord is concerned and the world is concerned they they're, it's now we rather than rather than me and God uh, joins that union together by covenant obviously by the physical relations and then spiritually and then the way that he treats them the way that he views them There are responsibilities that go along with that. And God says that's good. Um, While God created that good, we also know we live in a a fallen world. I mean, now outside of the garden, outside of the garden and inside of our hearts is not good. (laughs) There's sin that's there. And so what do we do? How do we deal with that? Well, the law comes along and regulates, doesn't condone or change the Lord's original intent for marriage. The law regulates sinful people relating to one another and regulates uh, sinful people, in this case Israel, in the presence of a holy God. You know, the law existed before Moses. This is Paul's whole, Paul's whole argument in the book of Romans, right? The Jewish people are saying their salvation, their, the, the reason they're right with God is because of the law of Moses. We have circumcision and we keep the law. And uh, Paul says, that doesn't make you right with God. The law existed before Moses. The promise of salvation came to Abraham, and Abraham existed before Moses. And so salvation has always been by faith, which is the the covenant that God made with, with Abraham. The law came along and taught them how to express their faith in the, the literal presence of, of, of a holy God. What, what's happening when Moses comes? So there is the, the law of God that was there, and then the, the, the relationship that comes through Abraham, Isaac, you know, Jacob, and then the uh, Joseph goes into Egypt, and now God raises up Moses and leads them out, and now they're going to the promised land, which is part of the Abrahamic covenant, Right? So they're, they're now going to get the land. And in the land, now they're going to live in, in, in God's presence. He's, he's not up there talking. He's now going to, to be in the midst of the tabernacle and ultimately the, the temple before the Messiah comes. So the law, one of the things the law does, a number of things, teaches us righteousness and right and wrong and about God. It's our schoolmaster that shows us we need something uh, more than the law, it leads us to Christ. It, it also was to regulate uh, human behavior, human beings uh, living in a fallen world and to regulate those sinners with God now living there in the, in the temple and, and in the presence. Um, so what you find in the New Testament we'll see today, the Pharisees are appealing to the law as the basis for for their marriage and divorce decisions, when when that was never the intent of the law. The the intent of the law was never to give God's intent on marriage and divorce. It was to regulate sinful behavior that's happening because we live outside of the garden, which is why Jesus takes them back to the beginning. God made them male and female, and what God joined together, let no man put sunder. So that's what you're going to find in the in the New Testament. So we looked at Malachi, which is a, a, prophet, a prophetic statement. So again, think about the genres, okay? So you have the law, Deuteronomy 24, which is where the Pharisees appeal. It's case law. So you have a man putting away his wife uh, for some indecency that's there, and then what happens if she goes out and marries somebody else and then comes back, he can't marry her again. This is, a, this is specific case law of circumstances that happen. There's no command in Deuteronomy to do that. It's just saying this is happening and this is what you do when this happens. Just like there's other case law. What do you do whenever you, uh, you, know, you kill your neighbor's donkey? How, how, do you, how do you deal with that case law? And so they're appealing to, to that place... And then you have this passage in Malachi, which is prophecy. These, the prophet is speaking. And so the prophet in the Old Testament is the, is the mouthpiece of God to correct his people or to, 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 to redeclare the promises to his people. So, so there's sin going on in Israel, the way that they are treating their wives. And so Malachi gives God's perspective. The prophet speaks prophetically. This is what God says, how God feels, the way God sees what you're doing right now. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because you are treating them sinfully. Uh, these are the, this is the wife of your covenant. And, um, so we got, we got all of that, right? So we covered last time. Proverbs, Romans, and Malachi. Now what does Jesus have to say? You'll hear people, they will appeal to... The red letters in the Bible. Uh, Remember the first church that I was in? um, uh, I had a a lady who was there who was an assistant, um, was the assistant choir director, and I taught uh, on Mother's Day, Titus 2, and the biblical role of, of, of a woman. I had no idea that that was controversial, there at that church or to that woman and I mean I I don't I probably have a recording from it somewhere but it wasn't like I was you know just really pressing some uh, you know some hard message home and just walk through what Titus 2 says about the the role of women and in in the middle of the sermon she gets up and and runs out crying and I you know you have lots of things that happen in the middle of the sermon and so I don't know what's going on I you know, I prayed for her just in the back of my mind, and I just kept preaching. Thought maybe something happened. She got a text or something like that, and I found her outside um, later when I connected with her, and and she was crying over the sermon. And uh, I said, you know what, what? What did I say other than you know what what the text? Well, I just fundamentally disagree with, with what you know what you said. Well, but this this is what the Bible says, what the Word of God says, and and she says to me. No, those are the words of Paul. They're not the words of Jesus. It's like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I only believe in the Ten Commandments and the the words of Jesus, which are in my Bible in red. So then we had to have a, a little systematic theology on. Uh, we should have sent it to Michael's class, right? On 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 the Bible. Well, all of Scripture is is inspired by God and breathe and the. Red letter doesn't make a hill of beans difference. It's it's all Bible. Um, Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there. Um, But it does help us to see what is Jesus echoing? What is he teaching? Because he's correcting uh, apostate Judaism. Um, So what's going on there? You remember John the Baptist has to come and correct Israel, prepare them. His message is repent. The kingdom of, of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because, because they're off base. And, and the Apostle Paul is obviously still doing that in the, in the book of Romans. So Jesus doesn't treat divorce or marital, uh, marital perversions casually. So look at Matthew 5, 27 through 32. Jesus speaks about where the issue is, before he, he goes into how it's carried out, marriage, divorce, and all those kind of things, he aims where the fundamental problem is. And the fundamental problem in, in Matthew 5, in all of Matthew 5-7, through 7, is the heart. Remember what Jesus is doing here. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And The Sermon on the Mount is probably given in one session, but this is the message that Jesus is preaching around the, the uh, around Galilee. When he says he's preaching, repent. The kingdom of God is is at hand. Come into the kingdom. This is what he's preaching. At least, there's probably other things that he's saying, but but this is Matthew's record of that of that sermon. Well. Uh, before we, we look at Matthew 5, I, I want to show you really the, the, the outline of it, or the punchline. You have the, the blessed. This is, this is what a, a repentant heart looks like, a heart that's, that's ready to enter the kingdom, a heart that, that's embracing the Messiah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, those are mourning over their sin. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. The merciful, the pure in heart. They're the ones that are going to see God. I mean, he's using salvific language here. And then look at what he says in verse 17. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I, I, I have come and what I'm about to say is going to undo what Moses gave you in any way, shape, or form or what the prophets gave you. I'm not going to change what, what, they, what they said. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is the permanency of the Word of God. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here is the. I mean. Here's the 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 grab-you-by-the-throat statement. This is the setup for everything that he says about lusting in your heart and divorce and oaths and practicing the law. Here it is in verse 20. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses, the, the word for surpasses is far exceeds. It doesn't just like get across the line. It's like to the moon. Unless your righteousness far surpasses, That of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that is like a gut punch statement. I mean, he's speaking to Jews. And if there's anybody in their minds that are righteous, that are getting into heaven, it would be the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the ones that handle the law, these are the ones that practice the law. These are the people that, that, that they parade around and everybody looks to as the righteous ones. And Jesus says, accept your righteousness, which is what you need to get into heaven, unless that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom. And they're probably going, What? You know. How can my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? And then he goes into the message and shows that their righteousness, what they claim is righteous, is only on the outward. It's only outside. Which is what he's doing when he's saying, You have heard, but I say unto you. He's actually applying the original intent of the law. He's not destroying Moses. He's actually upholding Moses. And he's showing that righteousness is not just outward what the Pharisees were saying is, as long as I do not commit physical adultery, then I haven't violated the law. I'm good. All the while, their hearts are unrighteous, which is where Jesus is aiming. And that's where you must have righteousness in order to enter the kingdom. You can do all kinds of outward things like we're learning in, in Romans chapter 2, right? But righteousness that you and I need is in the heart. It's applied to the heart. The law of God... Isn't, it doesn't just shine light on your behaviors. Of course it shines it there. I mean, even, even unbelievers think that you ought, to, you ought to live a certain way. They may have a different standard, but I mean that's not the, the big deal. The big deal is the law doesn't just shine on our outward actions. The, the law penetrates the heart. It shines God's light on the, on the heart. Um, it discerns the thoughts and intents uh, of your heart. And when the law of God shines on the heart, the part that you can't see in another person, that sometimes you can't even see yourself, your own heart, because it's deceitful. The law of God shines on the heart and reveals what's in there. And that's where you need righteousness. And that's why you have to have the gospel, because what the law does when it shines on our hearts exposes what's in there. And that's why you must be born again. You, you must have Christ's righteousness applied to your account, and then with that righteousness applied to your account, you're justified before God, faith alone. Then you begin sanctifying that heart, begins to be changed. Your mind is renewed, but God's voice becomes the echo in your own heart, and then you begin to obey that. And and you, you cease from sin, and you start practicing righteousness, and, and then you become more and more like God's standard, not only outwardly, but, but inwardly. It's impossible for you to become to measure up to God's standard or even want God's standard inwardly before you're born again, before you have new desires. But once you have those, then you now have that capacity. Uh, and so you place yourself under God's voice and, and hear God's voice. So that's what's happening here. It's a partial righteousness. It's a righteousness that's outward only. And so when Jesus is talking about adultery here, in verse 27, he starts with the law of murder. He's correcting and he's showing what you need to get into into heaven. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he's not denying that the Bible says that. Of course you're not supposed to commit outward adultery. You've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with, with within his heart. He, he's, he's not saying that lusting in your heart is equated to physical fornication, I mean, of course, lusting in your heart, and if it stays only in your heart, is, is not a great as, as great a violation as violating somebody physically, but he's saying that the, the righteousness, God's law is not just applied to the external, it's applied to the internal as, as well, so you're violating the law, and, and that violation sends you into the guilty category, and then ultimately to hell. Look at what he says in verse twenty-nine. Look how look how uh, radical, how how serious, how violent uh, of a of a uh, of, of a description that Jesus gives. It's hyperbole uh, of how you should deal with heart sin. If your right eye makes you stumble, then tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body going into hell. So, so he shows that God's law is not just applied externally, which is what they're thinking. It's applied internally. And if you find that the, this, that this uh, destructive perversion in your heart, then you've got to deal with that just as radical as the external. And he, he gives you the consequences. I mean, you start talking about eternal damnation. This is not just a minor, you know, a minor thing. So look at what your book says in page 260. Jesus speaks about the impurity of the heart, and that's what leads to the destructive perversions of marriage. And Jesus says if you're going to deal with the standards of righteousness, you can't just look at the actions or the outward evidence. Adultery begins as a perversion of the heart, and the self-righteous put a covering over their heart condition, and they acted as though as they didn't pervert marriage. Well, I didn't pervert my marriage. I, I, didn't, I didn't fornicate with somebody. And Jesus says, no, the heart condition is what makes you guilty before God. It is the heart, the thoughts, and the intentions that Christ examines. Well, that's a completely different standard than just outward, isn't it? Which is why your righteousness must far exceed just that outward part if you hope to get into the kingdom of of heaven. And, And he keeps doing that. First half of the Sermon on the Mount is all application of the law. The law is applied not just to the not just to the actions, but to the heart. And then chapter six, he talks about practicing the law, and he'll talk about praying in public, and he'll talk about giving in public, and they want credit for praying in public. Jesus says, "You don't get credit for praying in public." You get pre- you get credit for 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 genuinely seeking God from the heart. So go into your prayer closet. You know you don't get credit for sounding the trumpet and letting everybody know what you give, uh, or pretending that you give more than you actually do. God gives you credit for what you do. You know in the heart. So the law's application to the heart and the the uh, the internal motive behind the practice. And then he ends Matthew seven with an invitation. Again, if you want to look at. Um, Psalm one: The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. Jesus talks about two ways to live. Um, you either enter through the, the straight gate, the narrow gate, or you, or you try to, to go some other way. You you build your house on on a on the rock, or you build it on the sand. There there are two paths. There are two ways. One leads to life, and one leads to destruction. And then he summarizes it with that passage that we mentioned in Romans that all of you know. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, but who does the will of my Father. And doing it is not just outwardly, but doing it from the heart. The right motives that's there. In verse 29 through 30, Christ explains, I'm looking at D under 2 on page 260, Christ explains how severely you must treat the heart condition. He's saying that that the lust of your heart will lead to your eternal damnation. It's that serious. It will blind you and send you to eternity without Christ. Now, I said this is hyperbole. It's a way of of saying this is serious. You've got to deal with this. You've got to go after it hard. Um, you know, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. He's not saying literally do that. It, it, it's a way of saying, you know, the, your right hand, your right eye, th- that, that was viewed as, uh, you know, as, as prominent. Um, the dominant eye, you're typically right-handed. Sorry, left-handers. Um, I know that's not always the case, but he's saying whatever is dominant, I mean, if you've got to lose that, whatever you got to lose lose it uh, because it would be better to lose that and still go to heaven. Um, and in verse 31 and 32, Jesus is, in this passage, is teaching the, the heart of divorce, which is adultery. This passage does not teach all the nuances of divorce and remarriage. Remember, he's giving a standard of righteousness. How, how should the law be applied to, to view whether you're right with God or not? Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They're saying it's only outwardly. God's saying that the law applies to the heart. So how does the, how does the law apply to the heart? How are they applying it? Look at verse 31. It was said, obviously not by God or the way that God's applying it. It was said, whoever sends uh, his wife away, let him, uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits uh, uh, adultery. Again, this is not to go over all the nuances of the exceptions. I mean, there's not even talk about all the exceptions here. There's there's only one. They're viewing the covenant and divorce as, wrongly or viewing it lightly so he he's bringing it back to god's original intent how does god view any reason you're saying it's for any reason how does god view any reason he's saying there's one where the covenants already been violated um, beyond that it's adultery which is the law and he's applying the law so this is a, a an expression of the way they're trying to apply the law and he's correcting you know that Yes. Question. Uh, the the phrase makes her commit adultery. No, I, I think you're—it's a very logical question. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the first thing I would say is notice who he focuses on here. He makes her commit adultery. So the, the focus is on the perpetrator. You're saying this God—we'll it, it, It's we'll deal with her in a second. But God's not, not dealing with her, dealing with you. You, because you are just putting away your wives for no reason, and you're saying that it's okay— you're, you're in double sin. You're not only, you're not only uh, violating God's law yourself, because the reason that they were divorcing people was the lust in their hearts. They didn't want to be married anymore. So we put them away. And he's saying, not only are you uh, an adulterer, but, but you're putting her in a position to commit adulteries. So the second thing is, there's an assumption that she's remarried. Because what's happening in Deuteronomy, hard-heartedness toward your, your wife you give them this piece of paper, the regulation that's going on, the paper says you're free to remarry. So the wife is then free to remarry, and she remarries. And the entrance of that, uh, the beginning of that marriage is, is an act of adultery because there wasn't any uh, reason for uh, legitimate reason. In this case, the Pharisees are just putting them away, burning their food or whatever it is. Um, adultery happened. So I don't think that um, he's saying, uh, condemning the woman here. I think he's condemning the the man who puts her away for the wrong reason. Um, But yeah, I think that clearly says that when she remarries, that begins with with an act of adultery. The other thing I think you can say there is whoever marries a divorced woman. So now that assumes that that new marriage, even though it began... With adultery, unknown to the woman, it seems because she's being put away. Then God acknowledges that marriage, so she's not living in perpetual adultery. It's not like she's an adulteress now. It's it's a it's a new covenant. It's a new union. All of the issues and all of the the problems that go along, you know, with with a divorce. Um, yeah, I think the focus here and Jesus is applying this to to circumstance and the circumstance is they're putting away their wives they're they're only thinking that they're uh, that all that matters is that they didn't commit adultery and they're misapplying that Deuteronomy 24 and he's saying um you're an adulterer in the, in your heart you better deal with that or you're not getting in the kingdom and not only that, you're, you're hurting and affecting other people. You're actually causing them to commit adultery, whether they intend to do that or not, because the woman in this case doesn't really have a lot of rights. She's just being put away, and there's nothing she can do about it. And the provision that God gave in Deuteronomy 24 is to protect the woman. You know, she has a dowry, and that dowry has been taken by this husband, and now that husband's putting her away... And so the law regulated that so she's not out there on her own or has to go back to her family by shame. So she gets a writ that says she is, 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 is able to remarry because this guy has thrown her out. And now that gives her the ability, according to the law, because of the hardness of his heart, to remarry. And now that she's remarried, she gets another dowry you know, that, that's there. So that's really what Deuteronomy 24 is dealing with, protection of her and then if this guy, the second guy, dies or he divorces her, then the original guy can't take her back and get her second dowry or, or, or anything else. She's defiled. So this clearly acknowledges that if there is a remarriage for an unbiblical reason, it, there's an act of adultery that happens. But it's an act of adultery, and then it's a marriage. And now you have to deal with the covenant, you know, that's, uh, that's there. But, yeah, so I think he's, that's a secondary point, but, but it's a really good question to ask because it's, you go know, whoa, what, what's going on here? But I think he's aiming this. Where is he aiming his fire? His fire is toward the way that they're treating divorce. They say, well, we can send my wife away, and Moses permitted it, and it's not any big deal. And he was saying, no, when you do that, you're going to be guilty before God of the sin that you're causing her to commit. I think that's his point there. And that's red letter stuff. Huh? And that's red letter stuff. That's red letter stuff. Amen. How could that make <laughs> that is somehow less severe than yeah. what anything Paul <laughs> ever Yep, that's, that's, amen, that's red letter stuff. In those days, uh, look at three. I'm sorry, look at, uh, look at one under, under E. This passage has often been used incorrectly by the church to keep people in a state of singleness. Uh, one would have to ignore 1 Corinthians 7 to hold the view that remarriage was not possible. In that case, Paul himself would have been violating Christ's teaching with his teaching. Uh, Verse 31, though, the perpetrator, the guilty, the offender, is the one desiring the divorce without biblical cause or justification. And Christ cites Deuteronomy 24 to show that adultery is at the heart of the divorce and a violation of God's design. So the guy that's putting her away, giving her the writ of divorcement, has already committed adultery and violated the law in his heart. And now he's going to violate the law externally, and they're saying, "Oh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't commit adultery." She, you know, but, but it's okay. I'm okay because I'm, I'm using the law to get what I want. And he's saying, "No, the law's applied to your heart. You're an adulterer in heart, and, and now you're going to be an adulterer externally, because what's the other thing?" Verse thirty-one is assuming that the man's going to remarry, right? So. He's saying, you're saying, I'm not guilty before God because I didn't do anything wrong externally. He's saying, it starts in your heart, and you did it in your heart, and now you are going to be guilty externally because you gave her a writ of divorcement. You're just using that as a way to mask your heart. Um, Number three, in those days, the Jews were giving certificates of divorce to those who appeared righteous... Their desire was not to end marriage because of sexual sin on the part of their spouse. Instead, one party wanted out because of lust. Um, And don't just think of lust as sexual lust. Lust is any desire, desire for something that God has forbidden. Um, Number four, the Jews' uh, perversions included almost any reason for divorce. And the only reason. Clause in the law from Deuteronomy 24 was for impurity, sexual sin. So in this passage, the perpetrator makes her an adulterer because he wants out of the marriage. His lust or his offense makes him the initiator. Um, You've heard the politicians, was it Barack Obama? that Hillary Clinton first said, uh, it takes a village. And then Barack Obama said, uh, am I my brother's keeper? Or I am my brother's, we're all our brother's keeper, however he said it. This passage um, is echoing the the millstone. If you cause your brother to stumble... um, You're responsible for your own sin. You'll stand before God alone. But one of the things that you'll stand before God for is what you caused other people to do or how you influenced other people. I mean, the the terrifying passage for me as a teacher is James 3. Let not many of you desire to be teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. Well, why will I incur a stricter judgment? Because you're sitting here listening to what I'm saying. And to the extent, obviously, I have no authority other than the text, but I could misapply the text and then mislead you. And you may not even realize that you're being misled at that moment. Therefore, I will be held accountable, not only for how I interpret the Bible and put it into practice, but how I am interpreting it and sharing it with you, and then you go out and do it. It's You'll be held accountable for your sin, ignorance, whatever it might be, but I'll be held accountable for what I caused. And so that's what he's saying here. It's a, it's a scary thing. The perpetrator there um, makes her an adulterer. But look at verse 32. Um, Jesus, his point is not that the innocent party cannot ever remarry. And I already pointed this out. Whoever marries, so it's marriage, obviously, has taken place. Deuteronomy twenty-four is clear: the perpetrator or the offender causing the divorce is the one who stained, who is stained and not not permitted to be remarried. So that's Matthew five: how the law is applied to the heart, and how adultery begins in the heart. Um, any questions or comments about that before we get to Matthew 19? Yes, sir. Yeah. am mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, brother. I I'm just Yeah. That's a, the question is is real. So uh, one of the things that we're going to do um, is uh, is pray for you. Um, uh, there's a lot of in order to answer that question, I, I would need to know a lot of other you know a lot of other things. What should you be doing? You know, right now it sounds like what you are doing, which is pursuing uh, you know reconciliation you know with your wife and and your marriage. Um, is it, do you find, um, I mean, is it, is, is it immorality? Is there, on her part, okay. So it's just two Christians that are saying, I don't want to do this anymore. There's stuff that's gotten in there that, that's, yeah, unhappy marriage, yeah. Um, so that would fall under 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks to the unhappily married Christians. And he talks about uh, you know, speaking to a Christian, like in this case, if it's your wife pursuing that, you're not pursuing it, um, he would say, don't divorce your husband. You know, don't separate from him, or, or if you do, then be reconciled you know, or remain single. Um, and then he says, don't let the husband divorce you know, the wife. So in that case, and we're actually going to get to this when we get to the exception clauses... Um, there are two exceptions. One would be immorality or adultery. The other would be abandonment. What does abandonment mean? And, you know, I think in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's specifically talking about uh, a believer with an unbeliever. But I think you can have a de facto unbeliever there. So you have somebody who's professing to be a Christian, but just rejecting what the word of God says and they're, they're leaving, they're departing I, I'm, I, I'm, I prayed the prayer, I'm a believer but I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what scripture commands me to do now what do you do with that person are they a believer or are they an unbeliever well you can't make a final judgment because only God can see the heart but you can make a functional judgment and a person like that is not acting like a Christian They're not operating like a Christian because they're saying, I know what God says, but I'm not willing to reconcile. I'm not willing to pursue my marriage. And it'll come out in a lot of different kinds of ways. We should have never married to begin with. Somebody, you know, Aunt Susie told me, but I put that aside and just went through with it. And now God's correcting the wrong that I did back then or... God loves me too much for me to be unhappy. He doesn't want me unhappy and I'm unhappy. Or or I just don't love him anymore. It'll come out in a lot of different ways. But the bottom line is, it's a refusal or an excuse not to do what God says. Um, So now, you are professing one thing, that Jesus is your Lord, and you're not doing what he says. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not obey what I say? So that's the whole point of Matthew 18. Um, If we hear, then we're acting like a brother. Take two or three witnesses, and if you hear, then again, you're proving to be a brother, meaning a believer. If you won't hear the church, then you're, you're, you're acting. The church then treats you like an unbeliever, a heathen and a publican. Again, not a final judgment because you can't see the heart of somebody. But now you have somebody, again, who's saying, I'm a believer, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm rejecting what he says. And a lot of times, again, all this other noise about why Jesus is saying something different than what he says in the, in the Word. So in that case, now you have somebody who's professing one thing and acting another way. And now I think you can, at times, apply that, you know, that abandonment clause there. Same thing with abuse. Somebody who is who's clearly violating what God commands about how you treat a, a woman or, or a man, most abuse, and not to get into verbal abuse and emotional abuse, and everything's abusive today in, in the world. I'm talking about, you know, crime, physical uh, physical component. You, you can argue there. Uh, again, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but you know, but I just get angry and I just do this, you know. But at some point, you've got to deal with the fact that you're professing one thing and you're acting habitually another way. And the Bible says if you profess one thing and you habitually act another way, what's true? Not what we say, but what we do. Um, and you've got to deal with that, which is why Jesus is really pushing the accelerator down on this, this hand and eye thing, because it's very easy to deceive ourselves that what we say and, and what we think versus what's coming out of our life... You know, and we, we say this and then excuse what's coming out of our life. Now that is uh, you know, application without knowing all the details of, of what's going on. And my heart just breaks for you, my friend. It's, it's so hard. and um, I'm happy to help however, you know, however I can. I would just say right now, Flee to Christ uh, and pursue her uh, in that way. And um, your elders in your church hopefully can, you know, can, can prevail there. And there's probably damage of the, of the relationship and you know, hardness of heart. A hard heart is, you know, that heart has to be softened before the word can even get in there. Um, you know, brick gets built up in the window and gets up and then it gets torn down and still leaves a layer of bricks and then it bricks up and then it gets torn down and leaves another layer and bricked up and torn down reconcile, 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 the next thing you know it's just, there's, there's a callus there, there's a wall there and so I'd definitely be praying, you know, that the Lord would soften you know, her heart so, um Thanks for asking and just being transparent. So can we pray for this brother in this marriage right now, guys? Father, I come before you and I thank you um, for the privilege to to pray for this situation right now. Thank you for for our brother who has laid this before us. Um, what a what a humbling thing and what a what a glorious thing. Um, and we don't want to miss the opportunity to, to pray for him and pray for his marriage. Um, I don't know the details. I don't know what he's done, what she's done, but you do. You know everything. And we know what, what you want to happen. We know you want this marriage to be reconciled. And I pray that that would take place. I pray that you would soften his wife's heart, that you would give her clarity to her own sin I pray that you would give him clarity uh, with his sin and that you would do what what you can do Lord you are able to restore what the locusts have devoured you're able to bring light I I pray for for the elders the counselors whoever is involved and I pray even right now you would just remind our friend that that you love him you haven't forsaken him and you won't and you'll walk with him through this dark valley and um we just hold him up to you we, we help bear his burden even now and uh, i ask it all in jesus name amen amen all right there's your your task this week pray um verse 32 Jesus' point is not that the innocent party cannot ever remarry Um, it's the perpetrator Matthew 19 um, now Jesus is being challenged and tested by the Pharisees so they've The key to remember in Matthew 19 here is that they've already heard the Sermon on the Mount. They already know what Jesus has said. And they're trying to apply... uh, They're trying to outfox Him, if you will. Um, And so verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the large crowds followed with him, and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. You ever wonder what their motives are? It's spelled out right here. And they're asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And they're setting him up, and here he answers in verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave... For what reason? The fact that He created them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So there's the creation. He made them male and female. And one of the reasons He made them male and female was so that they would leave father and mother and they would be joined. And now they're they're no longer two, but they're viewed by God as one flesh. And verse 6, notice who joins them. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together? Let no man separate. So then they come back at him in verse 7. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice the the nuance of words here. They say, why did Moses command to do that? Well, Moses never commanded to do that. Moses gave case law. Verse 8, And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you. divorce your wives or send away your wives but from the beginning it has not been this way so again what are they doing they're appealing to case law of trying to regulate sin in a fallen world as god's basis and jesus says that's that's not the way it works you appeal to god's design god's desire which what is good not they're looking for the loophole. Um, so he appeals to the beginning. In verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like that, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those for, to whom it has been given. He points out there are eunuchs, eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there were also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. They're able to accept this, but but you're not. And um, I don't think uh, most of us in here are not eunuchs. So... But but verse 10, you do have the disciples recognizing the seriousness of what Jesus is, is saying here. So he's being challenged, he's being tested, that's the context. And Jesus dealt with the Pharisees who were trying to make their own rules and regulations and the Pharisees are testing Jesus to catch him in a nuanced violation of the law or some inconsistency. They don't really care about how to apply the law or what God desires, they're, they're aiming at Christ, and, and they're trying to trip Him up. And so Christ creates the framework to teach by tracing marriage back to God's original and perfect design from Genesis. And Scripture is clear that man leaves father and mother for a godly marriage, not for a perversion of God's design. And the design is rooted in how God created them, male and female. This is also the greatest argument against homosexual relationships and same-sex marriage. You will hear people say, uh, the ones that try to use Scripture, in order to say that uh, what God is condemning in Romans 1 and other places is abusive relationships. As long as there's love, it doesn't matter about the, about the gender. Um. And Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. That's typically what, what you'll hear. And your answer is, yeah, he did, right here. Um, he, he doesn't talk about bestiality here. He doesn't talk about, you know, ten wives. He doesn't talk about any other perversions of the, of the human heart, which all of those are perversions of the human heart. He goes back and says, what, how did God create people, and what was his original design and intent? He created them male and female so that they could come together. Um, The design of the the family has the man leaving and cleaving in a one flesh union and there's no other design for the family. This is the the groundwork laid by Jesus before answering the question. He lays the groundwork of scripture before he answers the question. In verse 7, the Pharisees think they've trapped Jesus by bringing up Moses, the patriarch of the law. I mean, is Christ going to wrangle with Moses from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4? How laughable. It shows you how stupid sin will make you, the the one who, who, who gave the law. And Christ shows them very quickly that God does not excuse the one who violates the one flesh union. In verse 8, Jesus says, From the beginning, it's not been this way, He reminded them that God allowed divorce for Israelites because of their hardness of heart because of their sin. And divorce is not a loophole. One person is going to harden the heart and the other person is going to be left unprotected and God is concerned about the unprotected one. And that's the purpose of Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus provides a clear statement about pornea, about immorality. And the word meant any sexual relations outside of the one flesh union It's not a lust or or cravings. The lust leads to sexual sin, which is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. And he teaches that sin begins in the heart and guilt is applied to the heart, the heart of adultery. But adultery in the mind is not the same or has the same consequences as physical adultery. Lust in the heart is still sin. How bad is that lust in your heart? Pluck your eye out and cut your hand off. That, that's how bad it is. So don't get in the idea that you're, you skate by as long as you don't do it. Lust in the heart is still sin and should be properly confessed and dealt with at that level. What, what, why does he have this in our, in our lesson? Because people will say, uh, my husband looked at pornography. Therefore, he committed adultery. Therefore, I am able to divorce. And that's not what Jesus is saying here or he lusts after other women. Well, that's horrific sin, and you need help, and you need God to deal with that sin, but that's not grounds for breaking your covenant. Now, if you don't deal with that lust in your heart, it's going to turn into some physical manifestation, whether that is self-pleasure, whether that's seeking pleasure from somebody else, or all kinds. I mean, the human heart is, is unbelievable. Our hearts are unbelievable. In, in, in the way that they can manifest and, and find ways to, to sin and deceive itself. Um, if you don't deal with that in the heart, it's going to come out, it's going to come out which is why the Lord's saying you know, what, what He's saying. But that's not what pornea, the, the immorality clause, is, you know, is, is meaning. And even then, it's permitted. It's not commanded. Um, so it's unrepentant uh, uh, adultery. Um, a refusal to leave that other partner and come back and repent and be reconciled and, and those things. So Matthew 5, Matthew 19. Any comments, questions? We'll kind of pick that back up. And What I would like for you to do this week is read both of those passages, in particular Matthew 19, because next time we're going to be talking about immorality and abandonment, the, the biblical ground. Is there any biblical ground? And there are two. Um, we'll be there, and also First Corinthians seven. Yeah, it. I think I understand what you're saying. Tell me if I'm right here. What what you're saying is he's pointing out is if divorce happens, like the other person does commit adultery, and you divorce that person because of the adultery, then you're not an adulterer. Your your new marriage does not start in adultery. Uh, because you had biblical grounds. Is that what you're saying or no? Yep. you don't have the right reason for it. Right. right correct yeah yeah yes absolutely that's good yep and then you would be an adulterer if you remarried and then you would also be accountable for causing her to commit adultery so it's yeah it's, it's really serious stuff it is so i hate sin i hate a broken world i hate the devil and I'm thankful for Christ and the church. And one day, brothers, one day, it's going to be gone. Sin's going to be gone. We're going to be in the kingdom. We'll be with the Lord. And um, there's the promise of the gospel. 1 Corinthians is a passage that you ought to memorize. It says, the fornicator, the adulterer, the whole list there. Is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Such were, past tense, some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified. So if that sin has been in your past and you've confessed that and forsaken that and come to Christ, you're not viewed as a divorced person before the Lord. You're washed and sanctified. You're, you're changed. Um, you may still be dealing with some of the earthly consequences um like me are things that i looked at before i came to the lord and those images are still in my mind they're not prominent but they're still in there i wish i'd never looked at them um consequence of sin but that sin's been washed and been given a new heart amen yes sir other testimonies in here where it didn't work out that way and the Lord has still been gracious and so don't lose hope regardless of your circumstance and uh, God's good it's a matter of the heart brothers so focus there alright Lord bless you and uh, have a great day remember next week no grace and granite so next Tuesday we'll not be here Uh, Myself, the seminary guys, a bunch of us will be away at uh, Courageous Churchmen, Jupiter, Florida, at the uh, expositor campus down there. And so uh, we'll pick it back up the following week. All right? God bless.